In July this year, ministers and elders from every Presbyterian church in New South Wales will come together to convene the General Assembly of 2023. One of the most pressing matters to be discussed, again, is the debate on women elders, specifically the vote to restrict the office of eldership to males only. The current debate has been on the table since 2019, but many will be surprised to discover that the debate is actually over 70 years old. In this season, season four of More Than a Cake Stall, we're going to consider the history of women elders within the Presbyterian Church of Australia and the Presbyterian Church of New South Wales. With a little help from past and present assembly delegates, clerks, moderators, ministers and elders, we hope to better understand how the courts of the church have engaged this issue over the last 70 years. And in doing so, find the answer to the question, how did we get here? As the General Assembly of New South Wales returns again to debate the exclusion of women from the eldership, we turn back almost 80 years to when this discussion first began. As with most significant cultural changes in the 20th century, the debate began in response to the upheaval and changes triggered by the First and Second World Wars. As large numbers of men left their families, workplaces and churches to serve in the war, women stood up to fill in the gaps. Presbyterian churches began to face the question of who would serve the sacraments and fill their pulpits. In some cases, Presbyterian churches filled these openings with deaconesses and missionaries, women trained and commissioned to serve in their communities. When the men returned from war, they found that the world had moved forward without them. In every sphere of life, family, workplace and church, communities had to grapple with the altered state of affairs. For the church, it meant wrestling with the question of women in formal offices. The women had proved themselves competent. But did that mean they should do the work? Should the church allow women into the eldership and ordained ministry? By 1948, only three years after the war ended, the General Assembly of New South Wales debated and rejected the proposal to allow women into the ministry and eldership. The debate came up again and again and again in both the New South Wales and Federal Assemblies until 1959 when the Federal Assembly, the General Assembly of Australia, appointed the Church and Laity Committee to determine if ordination to Word and Sacraments, that is, the Office of the Minister and the Office of Eldership, should be opened to women. The General Assembly of Australia meets every three years, and so the Church and Laity Committee 
had three years to refine their position. While they worked on their report for the Federal Assembly, the General Assembly of New South Wales continued to debate the issue, with an overwhelming no vote to bringing in women elders in 1960. When the Church and Laity Committee finally returned to the Assembly in 1962 to present the findings of their report, the Committee came back empty-handed. They explained, It became apparent that it would be impossible for the Committee to present a united report on the subject. The possibility was then explored of producing two reports, but it was evident that more than two points of view were held within the committee itself. The committee therefore reluctantly came to the conclusion that it cannot, at this stage, present to the Assembly a report which would serve any useful purpose. The question can only be properly discussed, both in the light of the revealed will of God known to us in Scripture and as understood in the Church's tradition, and in the context of an understanding of what is happening to men and women in their interrelations in society today. The relations of the sexes throughout public life, as well as in marriage and in the offices to which men and women are called in the life of the Church, has to come within any theological ethic. The Church is likely to continue to experience some frustration if she attempts to discuss in isolation the place of women in the ordained ministry of word and sacraments. The division in the church had become so deep and so wide that the committee couldn't even reduce their position to two reports. The report also helps us understand that the committee was undecided on how to take God's word and bring it into the context of the day. That same year, 1962, an overture was brought from the Presbyterian Church of Victoria to the General Assembly of Australia, and they helped to clarify and refine the study that needed to be undertaken. Their overture asked the General Assembly of Australia to appoint a committee to examine and define the doctrine of the eldership and the place and function of women in the life of the church, particularly in relation to the office of eldership, and to forward any relevant conclusions to the state assemblies and to presbyteries for their information and to report to the General Assembly of Australia in September 1965. And so the Federal Committee set to work again. This time their focus was centred just on the issue of eldership. But then a strong northwesterly wind reframed the debate. You see the Presbyterian Church's origins lie in Scotland and when the Scots admitted women to the eldership in 1964, the Australian Presbyterians took notice. The General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church of Australia now had to decide. Would we follow suit? Convened by Reverend A. Smart, the Committee for the Service of the Laity in Church and Community was instructed to focus on the eldership and the admission of women to this service in the church.
The key question to be decided by the General Assembly appears to be, does the doctrinal position of the Presbyterian Church of Australia permit it to adopt the Church of Scotland's view of the eldership? When the General Assembly of Australia met again in 1967, they had their answer. The committee declared, This committee, therefore, believes that there are no valid theological objections to the admission of women to the eldership. On the principle that, both churches, that is the Presbyterian churches in Australia and Scotland, acknowledge the word of God which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the supreme standard, both churches hold as their subordinate standard the Westminster Confession of Faith and both churches in their ordinals set forth the function of elders in identical terms. The duties of the elders are more particularly to set the examples of a virtuous and godly life and of regular attendance at public worship, to take part with the minister in administering the care and discipline of the parish and to represent their brethren in presbyteries and general assemblies when commissioned thereto. I've got to admit, as I read their paper, I was a little bit surprised. It reads very differently to the positional papers currently put out by denominational committees. Firstly, their description of the duties of elders seems more focused on keeping up appearances and administration than spiritual oversight. And while they initially stated that the Word of God is supreme and the Westminster Confession subordinate, there was very little theological engagement with the scriptures that form the theological perspectives on either side of the debate. I've linked the paper in the show notes so you can read it. And I think you'll agree that the paper focuses primarily on non-scriptural sources. It's a great church history paper, just not a theological treatise. The primary texts referenced are the words, practices and institutions created by John Calvin, John Knox and the Westminster Assembly. Mark Hutchinson, author of Iron in Our Blood, explains that what is remarkable in the whole debate is the degree to which biblical exegesis from both sides of the debate impinged upon assembly considerations. This is an indicator that meanings could no longer either be assumed or even drawn from the Westminster Confession, but needed to be coined anew from the biblical materials. In this sense, debates within the church began shifting onto the home ground of neo-evangelicalism. I brought in my friend and former church history lecturer, the Reverend David Burke, to help us get a better grasp on what this means. David, do you agree with Hutchinson's statement? Um, yes, in, in the main I do. Um, I think when we're looking at those decisions of the 60s and 70s, they just can't be understood without reference to uh, the looming clouds, uh, depending on how you see it, of the 1977 church union. At all levels, the pre-77 church was dominated by people of 
broadly speaking, there were exceptions, but broadly speaking, of a more liberalising theological temperament, and also people more concerned to follow the traditions of the Church of Scotland. So it was kind of a case of what they did in Scotland uh, would be seen as pretty influential for us. Now, the effect of that is there was less concern, not no concern, but there was less concern to take the scripture seriously and to take decisions that reflected it. After the union, uh, significant changes in two ways there. One is we were less concerned to follow the Church of Scotland. We had much more a sense of we're an Australian church. Um, we kind of do our thing under God. But the second big one is that there was a real concern for us to take the Bible far more seriously in our decisions. Now, I'm sure we, of course, we read the Bible through our personalities and context. I'm sure we got it wrong, but we're at least trying to get back to the Bible. Now, having lived through the 60s, can you describe the cultural climate of the Presbyterian Church of Australia for our listeners? How different was it from today? Um, so I was a teenager in the 60s and I can remember them. You know, the saying, if you can remember the 60s, you weren't there. The, it was a period, I think, when the church was losing its foundation. So there was a weakened view of the Bible inherited from the scholarship of the day. Now, that came from the theological college into the minister study, into the pulpit, into the pew, and into the courts of the church taking decisions. The other big thing that was happening in that period is the glory days of post-World War II cultural Christianity were going. I mean, there was a time when a Sunday school of 300 kids was not the exception uh, in Presbyterian churches along with others. Um, by the 70s, that's well and truly going. So you've got a church where there's two things. It's the church has lost its moorings in its understanding of the faith and commitment to scripture, and it's losing its cultural position. To use, um, I think, the helpful model of Neva, um, it was a church that was uh, Christ in the world, and so the church following the world more significantly than we might like. Very different climate today. To use Neva's phrase, I think we're in a situation of church against the world. As we all know, the culture around us is changing. Um, Christianity is seen as, in some circles, as a dangerous idea. And at best, the church is tolerated or ignored. And we're facing a little bit of hostility in Australia. So the culture has changed, but also the church has changed. I think we're less concerned now to follow the culture. We don't want to be in tune with the culture, which is probably a good thing, given the culture around us. Uh, we far more want to be in tune with God and that's shaping how we take decisions. So how did that cultural climate contribute to the debates and decision-making processes of the Assembly? I guess, as I just hinted, um, I think it means the Church was far more open to be influenced by the cultural climate around it and to follow. It, it's really a question of whose voice we're listening to. Now, of course, we must listen to the world. Um, that's part of being uh, in the world, as Christ called us to do. And the world will raise issues that we wouldn't other consider. And, and the issue of women's place in the church, that's one that we probably would not have examined apart from the feminist movement. So that's probably a good thing. It's made us look at it. So the world will um, cause us to look at issues and it will bring perspectives that we wouldn't ourselves consider. But there's a big difference from listening to the world and having the world shape our agenda and especially having the world shape how we answer questions. That's the trap to be of the world, not just in the world. 
Um, so the real problem in that period is who the church was listening to. I'm sure that people back then did not consciously deny or defy God's voice in Scripture. I don't think there'd be many doing that. Um, but I think we look back now and we see the way they approached the Bible somewhat muted its voice. So is that a hermeneutic approach then, David? I, there is a hermeneutical issue of how you read the Bible. There was also an issue of how you saw the Bible. Um, is, is the Bible the word of God or does it contain uh, the word of God, to use the phrase that became important in the period? David, uh, how should we approach these kind of documents as 21st century readers? I'm thinking here of how do we do source criticism well and avoid falling into what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery? Um, I'm familiar with the document that uh, you referred to, the, the report by Alan Smart. In fact, I did know him as a younger, when I was a much younger man. Um, it's a document that reflects his times and... It certainly draws very much on the traditions of the church and certainly the pattern in the Church of Scotland. Now, the effect of that is the Bible gets pushed a bit to the side, and so there's less of Scripture in that than we might hope for. And to some extent, and I say with respect, it looks like a conclusion looking for an argument rather than a question looking for a biblically shaped answer. So I teach church history in the Theological College. That's many of the books behind me here. Um, so I have quite a respect for the past, and I certainly don't think we should dismiss something just because it's so 20th century or so 19th century. Um, so I think we have to respect the past and not engage in the chronological snobbery that you describe. However, when we look at past documents, it must always be with a critical eye, otherwise we fall into the trap of traditionalism. So the big question is, what lens we're using when we look back at the past. And I think for uh, evangelical reform confessional Christians, we want to look at the documents from the past with a critical eye informed and shaped by the scripture. Now, of course, we're always going to read ourselves into that, uh, but I think we come through the, the lens of, of Christianity. So I think with those past documents, we need to sympathetically and empathetically understand them in their context but with a critical eye and be humble as we do so, knowing that someone's going to look back at us and they're going to do exactly the same. Well, however we assess the paper with our 21st century eyes, it appeared to convince the 1967 General Assembly of Australia. Of the presbyteries that voted, 31 favoured and 11 opposed the admission of women to the eldership. Of course, this was all part of a much larger debate. They're not called the swinging 60s for nothing. Social and cultural change happen in radical, polarising swings. Populations radically multiplied and urbanisation continued to spread. The church was grappling with the balance between evangelism and social work, attempting cultural relevance while struggling to keep up with the changes. Encouraged by the General Assembly of Australia's resolution, on the matter, in 1967, the presbyteries of Canberra and Sydney brought an overture to the General Assembly of New South Wales regarding the ordination of women as elders. David, help me out here. What is an overture? Well, um, as you know, we Presbyterians don't like to do anything quickly, um, and at times that's very frustrating, uh, but at other times it keeps us from the folly of rashness. So... 
An overture fits into that category of proceeding with caution. If I use an analogy, it's a bit like you're driving a car, you come towards a corner and you take your foot off the accelerator, you're slowing down for safety. So here's what an overture is. When people want to propose a major change, particularly, for example, to the regulations of the church, we book the book that we call the code, there's a process whereby you draw up an overture. So it might be seven people or a committee or another court. They draw up this formal document. It's got a series of premises, we call them recitals, that lead to a conclusion. And then you ask the, the assembly or whatever it is, you ask it to undertake a very specific action. So the assembly then will receive the overture. The overturers get to talk about it. The assembly gets to ask questions. Then there's a debate and the assembly decides to do something, which sometimes mean it's sent down under a thing called the Barrier Act. Well, the overture was received and approved in 1968 and then was sent down to presbyteries and sessions under the Barrier Act. So, David, help us out again. What is the Barrier Act? I thought you'd never ask. Um, if I go back to the car analogy, so you're driving your car along, you're not quite sure which way to go, you stop, park the car, put the brake on, you call up your friends and chat with them about what's the best way to get there. So that's what a, the Barrier Act is, where um, after, for example, an overture has been received, the Assembly thinks, well, we think it's good to go in this direction. The proposal is then sent out to all the presbyteries this is for the New South Wales Assembly, every presbytery gets to vote on it and then those results will come back to the Assembly the next year and if the majority of presbyteries have approved whatever the proposed action is, the Assembly is then free to enact it or it might choose not to. So it's talking to your mates before you take the decision. Okay, talking to your mates who are ministers and elders and who, therefore members yes, yes of through presbyteries. the presbyteries it's only the presbyteries get a vote there not the congregation finally in 1969 the general assembly of new south wales approved the overture altering the code to include women in the eldership and this triggered significant cultural change on the leadership landscape of the presbyterian church of australia many women were ordained to the office of elder supporting their ministers and sessions in their work and using their many gifts to serve the church. Women elders served in their presbyteries and joined assembly committees. For better or worse, the landscape of the Presbyterian Church of New South Wales had significantly and irrevocably changed. David, did the 1967 General Assembly of Australia and the subsequent Assembly of the Prezi Church make a mistake? Well, that's the trap question, isn't it? Because there is a, a rule if you uh, reflect on a decision of the courts of the church without proposing to change it, then you can be done over for something. Um, did they make a mistake? Look, I think they were decisions that arose from the times and reflected them. Um, as I said, both the church and the the world around us have changed. I don't think we would take those decisions now. I think there'd be no possibility for that. Um, that being said, we are, as a denomination, struggling with the issue of uh, female participation in leadership and decision-making. So the decisions we've taken have given us a different set of problems. Uh, to some extent, I, I fear we may find ourselves in a lose-lose situation. So 
we wouldn't take those early decisions again, but the decisions we have taken leave us with a problem. I think it's interesting that we currently have female elders and yet as a denomination we're still kind of grappling with how do we engage women in our decision-making processes. Mm. I don't think our women elders has been the silver bullet we might have no, hoped it no. was. And, and yeah. a lot of these questions, um, which also arose in the 91 debate in the GAA about women ministers or not, I can remember some of us felt that we should be, as it were, cleaning up our processes of decision-making and leadership. We should be attending to that first before we considered who may or may not be eligible. Uh, but we have we took the decisions first and then we're doing the catch-up afterwards. And, and I've noticed as I've been reading uh, through a lot of the reports in the Ferguson Library, almost every time this has been discussed, the question has been, how do we better engage women in the courts of the church? And then a list of proposals come out and then nothing is really yep. ever done about them. So it looks like this is an age-old Yeah, well, I, I, mean, I distinctly remember in 1991, because I was part of proposing it, that we'd set up a committee to uh, consider how we'd widen the participation of women if we're not going to have women ministers. The committee was set up. Now, that's 1991. We've still got committees looking at the same question. So tell me, David, have we gained anything through the inclusion of women in the eldership? Um, I, I think we've gained... A lot. Um, I've chaired sessions with female members, and in fact, as an interim moderator at the moment, I chair a session that is majority female. And I, I do think quite sincerely that women add to the quality of discussions and decisions. Um, so, a little theological comment is that within the absolute equality of men and women in creation, fall, and redemption, there are very real differences between men and women. The differences matter. And there are things that you women see and notice that that we guys will just not see and get. And, and so we need that voice. Um, I'll give a couple of examples. So I chair the reception of ministers committee that processes ministers coming to the Presbyterian church from other denominations. Now, we've now adopted a policy. We've always got um, a carefully chosen woman who is a member of those panels. And that female member will see things and ask questions and add a perspective that we guys will never get. So our decisions are being helped by having a woman interviewing people. And in fact, I think when you were interviewed to see if you'd be approved as a deaconess candidate, my wife was on the uh, panel and I'm sure she added some value to the presbytery there. So, so that's one thing. Women will add to the quality as a different perspective. And look again, in, in most of our churches, women are at least 50%, typically more so, in Prezi churches, women are at least 50% of our membership. Now, the church is not a popular democracy, but to have an organisation of some tens of thousands of people where half your membership is excluded by definition from your decision-making processes, um, that should flick an orange light somewhere and make us think. That being said, present moves to uh, exclude women from eldership um, give a flip side to to all of this. Uh, and I hear some stories that there will be men who are unwilling to be elders because women cannot also be elders. And there'll be families who are very happy to be in Presbyterian churches because we teach the Bible and hold the gospel dearly, but they won't commit to membership because of what they see as the exclusion of women from decision-making. Now, of course, the reverse is always true. There'll be people who presently won't join us because we have women elders. That's what I mean. We're in a bit of a lose-lose uh, conundrum, I think. And, David, what have we lost? I, I hear the argument that 
um, when women were allowed to step up into leadership positions, as many have, that that means we guys have stepped back. And I noticed in the country where I now live, for example, in local government, there are many female mayors around because the guys just don't want to do it. They'll stay in the farm or go to the footy. So there's an argument that men have stepped back from church leadership as women have stepped forward. Um, I appreciate that, but I think there's something bigger at stake in what we've lost. And I think the big loss was the way those earlier decisions were taken. Because we sat lighter to the scripture and more closely followed the world around us, I think we set a bad pattern of how we decide these things. I remember, I think it was the late 80s, um, some of us just had an informal meeting with those we disagreed with on some of the women's issues. And we observed that the kinds of arguments being used for women elders and ministers, that there was a logic to those arguments that would play out in issues like uh, same-sex marriage, homosexuality, the general issues of sexuality that were just starting to appear on the distant horizon in the 1980s. Now, uh, so, so we argued that, you know, the structure of the arguments, the kind of arguments on women were going to take us down that direction. Um, now, we were mocked for that and told, of course, that'll never happen, etc. I really am sad to say that it has proved to be the case. And so we look at the way some other churches handle issues around human sexuality, and I think we see the disastrous impacts of the kind of way in which decisions were taken in the 60s and 70s. As David's alluded, the inclusion of women to the eldership was seen by many as a Trojan horse, that it would trigger significant cultural changes and theological challenges to the denomination. And it was a mark of the deep division in the denomination between the more conservative and liberal camps. In 1974, the General Assembly of Australia was voting on a key issue, union. It's a little tangential but very important background for our understanding of the whole debate and how it played out over the next two decades. Union referred to the marrying of the Presbyterian, Congregational and Methodist churches in Australia to make one big denomination. You might have heard of it, the Uniting Church. In the 1974 General Assembly of Australia, the majority voted for union. That means that the majority of ministers and elders voted to leave the Presbyterian Church of Australia and join the Uniting Church. After they voted to leave the Presbyterian Church, they then moved on to the next point of order in the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church of Australia. Obviously, this upset the remaining Presbyterians. How could these ministers and elders vote to leave the Presbyterian Church and continue to make decisions on their behalf? The Reverend Dr Neil MacLeod moved a dissent against the Assembly continuing to sit, arguing that the ministers who decided to leave the Presbyterian Church should not be allowed to make decisions on behalf of it. He led a group of fellow protesters out of the Assembly and they convened a kind of secondary assembly known as the Camberwell Assembly of the Continuing Presbyterians. But while they were absent from the formal proceedings, those who remained, that is, the ministers and elders who had decided to leave the Presbyterian Church, they voted to include women to the office of minister 
ordained to the word and sacraments. It's probable that this motion would not have passed if the continuing Presbyterians had remained in the room. And, more importantly, it made the issue of women's ordination an incredibly painful point. For the remaining Presbyterians, those who had decided to stay in the Presbyterian Church and had moved into the Camberwell Assembly, the decision on women's ordination was something that had been done to them. It was not an issue that they had been able to debate and vote on. It became a matter of urgent priority to undo this decision because it was a decision made by the ministers and elders who were jumping ship, not by those who were remaining Presbyterian. And although this vote came seven years later than the inclusion of women into the eldership, the two matters became deeply intertwined. Union finally occurred in 1977 and was an awful experience for the remaining Presbyterians. Congregations were divided down the middle. Many churches lost their buildings to the Uniting Church and the battle over property, who got to own which building, which school, which nursing home, went all the way up to the Supreme Court. It was intense and took years to resolve. In many ways, the drawn-out battle over property and the pain and grief that that brought mirrored the much slower battle that dragged out over doctrine, especially in regards to the ordination of women to word and sacraments, that is the office of minister, and the eldership. In 1979, a motion was brought to the General Assembly of Australia to exclude women from the offices of eldership and word and sacrament, that is, to remove women as elders and as ministers. The premise was that this decision had changed the doctrine of the church. But it did not have the numbers to pass through the courts. Overtures have continued to go back and forth between the state and national assemblies on the matter of women elders ever since. But with an incredible sense of urgency, frustration and pain through the 80s and 90s. In our next episode of More Than a Cake Stall, we're going to look more closely at the aftermath of this decision and how it played out through the 80s and 90s. We hope you'll join us. More Than a Cake Stall is a podcast by the Women's Ministry Committee for the Presbyterian Church of New South Wales. Season four of this podcast would not have been possible without the incredible help of Sue Pacey and Reverend Bruce Meller at the Ferguson Library. I also want to acknowledge the resources that have been so helpful in compiling information. The book Iron in Our Blood by Mark Hutchinson is an incredible resource in understanding the history of the Presbyterian Church of New South Wales. Lecture notes compiled by Nicole Mannix, who's taught on this topic at Ministry Training Women at Christ College. And also to our very generous interviewees who have given up their time, energy and resources to share their insights and information on these issues. And also to you, our listeners, thank you for giving us the time. We'd love if you would subscribe to our podcast. That'll allow you to hear when the next episode is released. <music>